We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. The president died of a cerebral hemorrhage. All we know so far is that the president died at Warm Springs in Georgia. On April 12, 1945, President Franklin D. Roosevelt died suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage. He was just a few months into his fourth term. He had been in office for an unprecedented 12 years. He was perceived by many as the nation's savior during the Great Depression, and under his leadership we were only four months away from victory in World War II. Roosevelt's funeral was two days later, and it was covered by all the major networks. Reporting on the funeral procession for CBS was an announcer with the local network affiliate. His name was Arthur Godfrey. The drums are wrapped in black crepe and are muffled, as you can hear. And the pace of the musicians is so slow. And behind them, these are Navy boys. And now just, just coming past the treasury, I can see the horses drawing the caissons. And most generally, folks having as tough a time as I am trying to see it. And behind us, behind us is the car bearing the men on whose shoulders now falls the terrific burdens and responsibilities that were handled so well by the men to whose body we're paying our last respects now. God bless him, President Truman. We return you now to the studio. At a time when announcers were instructed to remain calm and neutral on the air, Godfrey's emotional response seemed to give voice to millions of Americans who felt the same way. Two weeks later, thanks at least in part to the publicity he received, Godfrey began hosting a daily half-hour morning show on CBS radio. Within the next few years, he would become the single biggest moneymaker on CBS radio and television, combining a slightly cranky but laid-back style with a smooth, unpretentious sales technique. By 1950, he would be a national celebrity, at one point responsible for 12% of CBS's income. His irreverent broadcasting style made millions, and his reputation grew until he became a beloved national figure. Then one morning, he fired one of his most popular regulars, live on the air. His reputation never quite recovered. Today on The Potluck, we look at the broadcasting phenomenon that was Arthur Godfrey. It's the story of what happens when a folk hero is placed on a pedestal and then decides to jump off. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the potluck. I'm David Inman. Arthur Godfrey had a ruddy Irish complexion and a shock of red hair leading to his nickname, the Old Redhead. 
He grew up just outside New York City in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, the oldest of five children. He left home at 15 and joined the Navy at age 17, lying about his age. Godfrey learned to be a radio operator during his time with the Navy and then with the Coast Guard. So when he was discharged in 1930, it was only natural that he went to work for a radio station. He ended up at WRC, the NBC affiliate in Washington, D.C., and at roughly the same time he took up a new hobby that would consume him for the rest of his life, flying. It was that passion that almost led to his death, but not in a plane. In 1931, while he was driving to an airport to take a flying lesson, an approaching truck lost a front wheel, swerved, and smashed head-on into Godfrey's car. Godfrey's pelvis was broken in 27 places. His right hip was smashed. His left hip was seriously injured, and both kneecaps were smashed, and he had a collapsed lung. He was about as banged up as a human can be and still live, and there was doubt that he would ever walk again, even if he could pull through. But as Godfrey would describe it later, that time in recovery led to an epiphany, at least as far as radio was concerned. He listened to a lot of it while lying in bed, and he was struck by the remote formality of the announcers of the day. It all seemed a little pretentious to a guy listening by himself in a hospital room. And then it occurred to him, that's what radio was, one person talking to another person. So what if the announcer was just as relaxed as the listener? What if the message was delivered with the idea that only one person was listening? It was a revolutionary approach, and Godfrey tried it when he returned to WRC. The station management was not impressed, and Godfrey was let go. But he quickly found a home at the CBS affiliate in Washington, D.C., WJSV. He became the morning man, hosting a wake-up show called Sundial, and he would stay at the station 14 years through its call letter change from WJSV to WTOP. Here's an example of Godfrey's style. This is a Sundial broadcast from September 1939. Here, it is three minutes past seven o'clock. What do you have for breakfast in your house, Mother? Did you ever try forced toasted wheat flakes? Ah, me, there is a breakfast cereal. Nobody in your house will turn their noses up bad, I bet you. Forced toasted wheat flakes. It is delish. I know whereof I speak because I was brought up on this stuff. Forced toasted wheat flakes. Maybe you remember it. Years ago it used to be down here, they tell me. Sunny Jim, you know, they had a big Sunny Jim doll that we used to stuff. They'd send you the, the um, outline of the doll, you know, in cloth, and you'd stuff it with stuff. And it was some fun. But now you give you a premium for you, Mother, a premium you can use. With every two boxes of forced toasted wheat flakes that you buy, you get a very colorful table napkin right along with the package. Pretty soon you'll have a whole luncheon set. These are very nice napkins. And you can get the tablecloth to match with uh, two forced box tops plus a dollar. But aside from the premium, the forced toasted wheat flakes is really a delicious cereal. Try it, will you? 
Listeners loved Godfrey's freewheeling style, but more important, advertisers loved the way Godfrey sold their stuff. He claimed to try every product before he would speak for it, and he would often proclaim his impatience with commercial scripts on the air. Kleenex Tissues present Arthur Godfrey Time. Yes, it's Arthur Godfrey Time with all the little Godfreys, brought to you by Kleenex. And you know, it's Kleenex Tissue Time at your favorite store right now. And now Kleenex, the tissue that pops up and meets you halfway, presents Arthur, the man who'll tell you all about Kleenex Tissue Time, Godfrey. Thank you. Thank you. That's a silly introduction. Kleenex, the tissue that pops up and meets you halfway, presents Arthur, the man who will tell you all about Kleenex time. God, what kind of a silly thing is that? I haven't the slightest idea, sir. Let's think of a new one. All right. That one is from Egypt. <clears throat> it's Sphinx. When Godfrey began his half-hour morning show on CBS, it didn't take long for all the commercial spots to fill up. So the show was expanded to an hour, and all those spots filled up. And so it was expanded to 90 minutes every day. As good as he was at selling, Godfrey still ran into interference with ad agencies. One day he discovered that the agency for Liggett and Myers Tobacco, the makers of Chesterfield cigarettes, was going to begin timing his spots. He mentioned this to his audience while he was on the air. And then, as Life magazine reported, he confined his commercial to these words. Start your watch, Chesterfield. Stop your watch. Godfrey shows were informal, filled with light conversation, lots of commercials, and musical numbers. Godfrey himself had a rumbling baritone, and he played the ukulele. He was the unlikely performer of one of the, the biggest words, hits of 1947. Anyone who listened even occasionally to the show came to learn a lot about Godfrey's pet causes. He talked so often and so positively about flying that major airlines credited him with building public trust in commercial flight. He had a farm in Virginia and he talked about his crops and his beloved horses. He was a big supporter of Dwight Eisenhower for president. Godfrey knew he couldn't blatantly campaign for him, but he was always ready to provide a warm word about Ike. Godfrey's rise was also perfectly timed to correspond with the rise of CBS TV. In 1946, in addition to his daily morning show, Godfrey began a show in prime time on Monday nights. It was a talent scout show, with Godfrey as the MC. Lipton Tea signed on almost immediately as a sponsor, and in 1948, Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts began being simulcast making it one of the first shows on CBS television. Wait a minute till I pour myself a cup of tea here. Are we on the air? Oh, well, pardon me. 
Let's have another cup of Lipton tea. Lipton tea and Lipton soup present Arthur Godfrey and his talent scout. Here comes Arthur Godfrey, your talent scout MC. Brought to you by Lipton's brisk Lipton tea. You know it's Lipton tea, if it's D-R-I-S-K. You know it's Arthur Godfrey when you hear them In early 1949, by sponsor demand, Godfrey began another primetime show on TV. It was an hour-long variety show called Arthur Godfrey and His Friends, and it was basically a clone of the morning show, featuring the singers and musicians, who were called the Little Godfreys. By early 1950, Godfrey was on radio and TV with a daily morning show, a weekly talent scout show, a weekly variety show, and twice-a-week ukulele lessons. He was credited for a boom in ukulele sales. Then on the weekends, there would be a radio digest of the previous week's shows. Every one of those programs were fully sponsored. Godfrey's style could also be just a little scatological, and that also added to his popularity. When CBS head William Paley complained that Godfrey's Wednesday night TV show didn't have enough movement, Godfrey brought on a line of hula girls. Is that enough movement for you, Bill? He asked. He also got into trouble a time or two for letting a damn or hell slip out live on the air. Godfrey would use homey expressions and tell stale jokes, but there was also a bit of an edge to him. The little Godfreys would always laugh just a little too hard at the boss's antics, and Godfrey would think nothing of instantly commanding a regular to sing or play a particular song, forcing them to perform cold. Once he assembled his cast and said, Remember that many of you are here over the bodies I have personally slain. I have done it before, and I can do it again. Over the little Godfreys, the host exercised tight control. They weren't allowed to have agents or to accept bookings on any other show. But on the other hand, he was giving them a showcase on the nation's most popular TV programs. The Little Godfreys were also thrust into the media spotlight. Frank Parker and Marion Marlowe were two of Godfrey's regular singers, and their specialty was romantic duets gossip columnists began spinning tales about a real-life romance between Parker and Marlowe. They were coy about it, not because they were in love, but because they didn't want to tell the real truth and end the good press. But the biggest star of all the little Godfreys was singer Julius La Rosa. Godfrey met him when he was still in the Navy, as Godfrey had been, and when he was discharged in 1951, Godfrey hired him on the air for added drama. La Rosa was young, handsome, and shy. Godfrey's band leader, Archie Blyer, began a record label in 1952, and the first person he signed was La Rosa, who recorded a couple of moderately successful singles. La Rosa's star began to rise, and his fan mail outpaced Godfrey's. Not a good sign. Then in the fall of 1953, La Rosa committed an unpardonable sin by crossing Godfrey twice. The first incident came when La Rosa skipped a mandatory ballet lesson for the full cast because of what he said was a family emergency. 
Godfrey reacted angrily, and in reaction to that, La Rosa committed the second sin. He hired an agent and told Godfrey to communicate through him from now on. That did it. La Rosa showed up for the daily broadcast of Arthur Godfrey time on October 19, 1953. Godfrey at this point was at the peak of his popularity. Over the summer, he'd taken a leave of absence for extensive surgery to relieve the lasting pain in his hips from the 1931 car accident. His operation and recovery were covered by the press in roughly the same detail as D-Day. Godfrey had returned to his shows with standing ovations just a few weeks earlier. La Rosa was expecting to sing in the show's first 15-minute segment, but Godfrey didn't call on him. The next segment came and went, and the next. Finally, in the show's sixth and final segment, Godfrey called La Rosa forward. And now I want you to meet a young man named Julius La Rose. It pleases me mightily whenever I see the reception that you give these kids, and especially Julius here. How long ago did you come? It was uh, November 13th. No, November 17th, 1951. Be two years next month. Not quite two years. Yes, sir. Two years ago. It was about three years ago then when I first met you. October 4th, 1951. When I first met Julie, I'll never forget when he first came up here and I said to him, well, when you get out of that man's Navy, if you don't want to stay in for 30 years, come on up here and I'll give you a job. And he took me at my word. And he came and I put him to work. And immediately everybody loved him. And it always has done my heart good to see that you people saw the same quality in him that I saw. Which of you have noticed, and I'm sure you have, is the same quality that I have in everybody in my cast. I picked them all that way. Sure, he's got a good voice, but lots of people have good voices. There's something else that you like, which is a, a wonderful quality that it's hard to get. I'll never forget when he first came here and went to work steadily. He said to me, gee, you know how he used to do, gee. <laughs> I don't know, with all those stars on the show. And I said to him, Julie, you don't know it, but I don't have any stars in my show. In my show, we, we're all just a nice big family of very nice people, like yourself. And you hold on to that quality and you never have to worry about a thing. You're just as big as anybody else. You just go on, try to improve yourself all the time, and one day you'll be the big stuff, see? And this boy in two years' time has done this. He and Archie have their own recording company now, and he's, he's gotten to be a great big name. And I would like Julie, if he would, to sing me that song called Manhattan. Have you got that? Huh? Yes, sir. Sing me that. Ever so much, Julie. That was Julie Swan's song with us. He goes now out on his own, as his own star, soon to be seen in his own programs. And I know you wish him Godspeed, same as I do. This is the CBS Radio Network.
Andy Rooney, later a commentator on 60 Minutes, was a writer for Arthur Godfrey during that period and was in the studio that day. Julius walked off the stage, came in the control room, and said, Was I just fired? The on-air firing was bad enough, but Godfrey made the matter even worse when he held a news conference and said that La Rosa had, quote, lost his humility, unquote. La Rosa made the most of the public sympathy he received. He recorded a number one single, and he signed a contract for multiple appearances on The Ed Sullivan Show. The incident also produced a novelty song by Ruth Wallace. Dear Mr. Godfrey, listen to my plea. Hire me and fire me and make a star of me. If only opportunity knocks upon my door. I have such humility like you never saw before. Humility, humility. Julius lost his humility. Godfrey's decline wasn't immediate, but it was beginning. And so were the firings. A few days after letting La Rosa go, Godfrey dumped bandleader Archie Blyer because his record label made a deal with one of Godfrey's rivals. And soon enough, more little Godfreys followed him out the door. Then in January 1954, Godfrey made headlines again because of his hot-headed behavior. He was taking off in his DC-3 from Teterboro Airport in New Jersey, and the tower wouldn't assign him to the runway he requested. Godfrey took off and then buzzed the tower, leading to the suspension of his license for six months. And the media, which had lionized Godfrey for the last five years, began piling on. Here's an article from around that same period from Time magazine. Last week, telecasting from Florida, Godfrey sat on a Miami beach with the Atlantic rollers surging behind him while his cast shivered in Manhattan. Using the split-screen technique, Godfrey chatted with each member of his team and listened approvingly while they told him how wonderful he was. Arthur operates on the disarming assumption that every viewer is at least as absorbed in Godfrey as he is, and he spends much of his 90-minute show discussing such items as his own weight, what he ate for dinner, what he did before the broadcast, and what he expects to do after it. In the fall of 1954 came the first real primetime competition Godfrey had ever had. Walt Disney's new show, Disneyland, premiered on ABC TV, opposite Arthur Godfrey and his friends. Disneyland finished the season in sixth place, while Godfrey's variety show was in 22nd place, down 16 spots from the previous season. There were also books and movies written about an egotistical TV personality whose power goes to his head. One was The Great Man, about a beloved media figure whose sordid past is revealed after he dies in an accident. Another better-known film is A Face in the Crowd, with Andy Griffith unusually terrifying as a performer who's an uncanny cross between Arthur Godfrey and a certain millionaire president. Politics have entered a new stage, the television stage. Instead of long-winded public debates, the people want caps or slogans. Time for a change, the mess in Washington, more bang for a buck, punchlines and glamour. Think you underestimate the respect which respect? people are never... Respect? 
Did you ever hear of anyone buying any product, beer, hair rinse, tissue, because they respect it? You gotta be loved, man. Loved. This whole country just like my flock of sheep. Rednecks, crackers, hillbillies, house prowls, shut-ins, pea pickers. Everybody that's got to jump when somebody else blows the whistle. <laughs> They're mine. I own them. They think like I do. <laughs> Only they're even more stupid than I am, so I gotta think for them. Arthur Godfrey and his friends went off the air in 1957, and Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts followed the year after that. His morning show, Arthur Godfrey Time, disappeared from TV the year after that. The 1950s had begun with Godfrey on the air for several hours a week on TV and on radio. By the end of the decade, he was back on radio, and the show was shorter. Godfrey still did occasional TV specials and guest shots, but he was no longer CBS's biggest moneymaker, and his influence was a shadow of what it had been. He did still do commercials and demonstrated a sense of ethics. When he was diagnosed with cancer in 1959 and had a lung removed, he expressed regret that he had been his longtime spokesman for Chesterfield cigarettes, and he urged his radio audience to get regular checkups. Godfrey also became an avid environmentalist in the 1960s, and when it was revealed that one of the laundry products he advertised on TV was harmful to the environment, he discontinued his involvement in the spots. In 1972, after a run of 27 years, Godfrey's daily morning radio show went off the air. On the final broadcast, he was in a reflective mood and recalled his coverage of Franklin Roosevelt's funeral. There is one thing I want to leave with you. In 1945, we lost President Roosevelt. And I was asked, as I often had been in those days, by the network to cover the funeral. And... Uh, I was often asked to do little pieces of what they used to call uh, public events. And this is the thing, this description that I did has become famous. The late Ed Murrow included it in a record of his called Hear It Now. And everybody thinks that it was great. I myself was so ashamed of having broken down in it that I vowed I would never again do any public events, that I was not a reporter, I couldn't be objective, I had to get emotionally involved, and that was no good in our business. And so it changed the whole career. But uh, I think it belongs here. It was the big event in 1945. Remember on the record how it goes? He had gone down Pennsylvania Avenue many times before. This was his last trip to the White House. A city watched. A nation listened. Arthur Godfrey, an old Washington hand, described it. The drums are wrapped in black crepe and are muffled, as you can hear. And the pace of the musicians is so slow. And behind them, these are Navy boys. And now just just coming past the treasury, I can see the horses drawing the case on. And most generally, folks having as tough a time as I am trying to 
see it. And behind us, behind us is the car bearing the man on whose shoulders now falls the terrific burdens and responsibilities that were handled so well by the men to whose body we're paying our last respects now. God bless him, President Truman. We'll return you now to the studio. It broke me up because I had known the late president very well. And I decided that day that uh, I must never again try to do that because I just, I'm one of those people who cannot be objective. I get deeply, personally involved in everything. And uh, I've enjoyed every minute of it with CBS. There have been times, of course, and there have been arguments, and there have been some tough battles, but... uh, with the great sales force, with the great esprit de corps that we once had here at CBS. Networks don't have it anymore, as no big corporation does, I guess. But it, it was a, a, a great joy, and I'll tell you this story someday. I'll write it for you. All I can say to you all now is thanks, stay well and happy, and I'll be seeing you. <laughs> This is the CBS Radio Network. Arthur Godfrey was now off the air. In 1981, there was talk about a reunion show with all the little Godfreys, and for the first time since his firing, La Rosa and Godfrey got together. But it didn't take long for old resentments to pop up. The meeting ended badly, and the reunion never happened. By now, although his lung cancer had been under control, Godfrey contracted emphysema. On March 16, 1983, he died in New York City at age 79. Considering what a mammoth personality he once was, it's all the more surprising that Godfrey is so little known today. But you can supply the reason in two words. No reruns. Godfrey did mostly live TV, much of it unpreserved, unlike Lucille Ball or Jackie Gleason, whose reputations live on because their shows live on. When Godfrey passed away, critic Tom Shales wrote, He, as much as anyone, helped take the chill off the idea of suddenly having a stranger in the house. The stranger was television. Another writer said, He seemed to persuade each listener that the whole informal, enchanting, titillating, folksy, and carefully crafted rigmarole was just for the benefit of that one person. The idea, in other words, that was born in the hospital bed of a seriously injured man in 1931. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is produced, written, and narrated by me, David Inman. If you liked what you heard, we invite you to subscribe to us on iTunes and also rate us because that helps other people find the show. You can see other episodes at the Incredible Inman Facebook page 
or you can visit IncredibleInman.com and click on Podcasts. You can see podcasts there, and you can also read uh, episode notes and our sources of information. See you later.